You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. It is spring in our story. The deluge of winter rains has passed, and now it is the time when military campaigns can commence, when kings and generals gather up their forces and lead them off into battle. And this is just what the people had demanded for themselves, you might remember, when Samuel was still judge and prophet when he warned them of all the troubles they were going to have if they would be ruled by a king, the people pushed back saying, and we too will be like all the nations and our king shall rule us and sally forth before us and fight our battles. Now is the time of year for military conquest and King David sends his general Joab and his troops out And dutifully, they follow the command of their king, and they engage the Ammonites, and they lay siege on the city of Rabbah. And it's here our gifted storyteller foreshadows a shift in the saga of David, dropping this little detail for us. And David was sitting in Jerusalem. No reason is given for his absence from the battlefield. Could it be that he's just too old? Has he lost his fighting edge? Has he gotten soft? Is he so enjoying the trappings of his palace, his many wives, and his even more numerous concubines that he cannot be bothered with going out into battle with his troops? Whatever the reason, the seasoned warrior has sent off all of his soldiers, leaving himself alone in Jerusalem, whiling away the hours. And the next sentence suggests that all is not well with the king or the kingdom. For the narrator says, And it happened at eventide that David arose from his bed. So not only is he skipping out on his royal duties to his troops, but here we find David lounging in bed late into the afternoon, and he finally gets up as dusk falls, and he heads to the roof to walk about and have a look over his glorious city. And this is where the story gets tricky. Motives, inner thoughts, emotions, none of those are given to us to help us make sense of what is happening here. There are gaps in the story as we are given it, perhaps intentionally left for us by a gifted ancient writer, or perhaps simply a remnant of a cultural context in which gaps like these would have been easily filled by its hearers, but are now just too far removed for us to fill in today. And the narrator seems not to offer moral judgments on any of the actors in the story. 
giving us only a sparse account with key details laid out, leaving much for us to ponder. And indeed, I think it's a passage like this that reveals just how much each of us reads scripture through our own experiences and the ways in which the story has been handed down to us through the ages, how it's been retold to us as children and adults, how it's been interpreted to us by others. How we understand this story, I think, helps us to see the very thick and culturally shaped interpretive lenses that we all bring when we read scripture. So David is on the roof of his palace and he sees a woman bathing. And it is here that the interpretations diverge. Is this a story of seduction or of abduction, of force and sexual violence? Now you may have seen that Bathsheba is often condemned by interpreters who accuse her of intentionally seducing the king or at the very least of being indiscreet. Somehow Bathsheba becomes the troublemaker, the one who causes poor old helpless King David to lust after her. Some even suggest that she planned the whole thing, that she scoped out a location that would be seen by the king at his palace on the hill. And these depictions range from scholarly assessments to sermons to Sunday school material and through the arts. Bathsheba is often portrayed as a femme fatale by artists throughout the centuries. In the 1951 movie David and Bathsheba, Susan Hayward plays a Bathsheba who has been planning this whole thing, unbeknownst to David, who's played by Gregory Peck. And in this Hollywood retelling, Bathsheba is transformed into this temptress, bewitching the hapless and unsuspecting king. And somehow this encounter from scripture becomes one of romance none of which we must admit is in the text. We are only told that she is very beautiful. There's no description of her motives, no description of any plans she has beyond performing the ritually required cleansing. We have none of her inner feelings or thoughts. And David, with so much free time on his hands, is intrigued by this bathing woman he sees from his house. And again, he sends someone. This time, he doesn't send a general into battle. Instead, he sends a messenger to inquire about this unnamed woman he spied from his palace roof. And he is told that her name is Bathsheba. And she is identified by both her father and her husband's names, perhaps because they may both be members of David's military. Undeterred by her marital status, David again sends someone, this time messengers, to fetch her or take her. And notice here again, the king who has sent soldiers into battle without him is now acting again, this time sending messengers to take what he wants, the wife of one of his soldiers. And when interpreters spin the story of Bathsheba with these few details, 
as a sexy temptress, they are perpetuating the narrative that women are somehow responsible for the lust of men. And it is a story that women know far too well, that somehow we're the ones who asked for it, that we're the ones who cause sexual harassment or unwanted advances or violent assaults. It's the implication that the skirt was too short or the woman had one too many drinks or she shouldn't have been at that party or that bar or walking down that street. And by placing the blame on Bathsheba, we allow ourselves to let David off the hook thereby keeping our hero's reputation intact. Then we can overlook his actions. We can view them as private indiscretions at worst. But this inclination to make excuses for David flips the encounter that we are given in 2 Samuel on its head. Because in the biblical story, Bathsheba has no agency. She's at home. She's going through the ritual bathing required after her monthly cycle. It's David the king, David the military hero, David the uniter of Israel and Judah, the musician and the politician. He's the one who has all the agency, not Bathsheba, who did not inquire about the king, who did not look upon the palace and desire the monarch. It's David who acts in this story. And he's the one who sins for her and is the one who takes her. It's David in the story who has all the power, who's chosen by God, yes, who's cultivated this reputation as a manly fighter, who has acquired wealth and possessions, who's constructed this palace on a hill from which he can oversee his city. Which brings us to another way of understanding this story as a tragic and terrifying one, a story of power and authority wielded and abused to take whatever and whomever is desired. When the messenger comes to take her to the king, would Bathsheba have known what is in store for her? Or was it only when she was in the king's presence that his attentions became clear? The narrator is silent on this point, leaving those questions to us, the reader, to ask and determine. Regardless of when she understands what is happening, the power imbalance is stunning. I mean, who could refuse the king, God's anointed one? She was his subject. Her husband, a servant in David's army, David was her king. She had no options but to assent. And it is an old, familiar, and maddening story of power and abuse. In some ways, we might see connections between this biblical story and ones from our own nation's founding. Think of the relationship between Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemming, an enslaved woman with whom Jefferson fathered at least six children. Thomas Jefferson, founding father whose soaring rhetoric helped lay the groundwork of our democracy. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Who in the musical Hamilton stylishly saunters on the stage in the second half of the performance, 
finally returning to the young nation after the revolution is over from an extended time in Paris to sing, What Did I Miss? It's that Jefferson who inherited land and wealth and enslaved people in his lifetime holding over 200 people enslaved and whose own children by the enslaved Sally Hemings were also held in slavery until adulthood. Two of them being freed while he was still living and the rest after his death. There's no record that Sally, the mother of his children, was ever emancipated. So we have our own story of men with power, wealth, influence, and a woman with no power or person to advocate for her. It's difficult for us to imagine how much agency a woman could have when a powerful man who owns her or who rules over her and her husband. The biblical account gives us few details. No answer to our modern-day questions of assent or of consent or force. But after that encounter at the palace, Bathsheba returns home, and then later she sends word to David that she is pregnant. And it's at this point in the story that it turns to cover-up. David clumsily attempts to cover his actions by sending for Uriah, her husband, bringing him back home from the front lines for a furlough with his wife, and all of his devious plans fail. Uriah is a devoted and loyal soldier in contrast to King David, and he refuses the amenities at home while his comrades are still on the front lines. Rather than visit his wife, he sleeps outside the door of the palace with the palace servants, the same palace whose roof David used to see his wife. So David turns desperate. He sends a letter to his general Joab with an even more desperate plan, a scheme to leave Uriah alone on the battlefield with all the other soldiers falling back, leaving him to die by enemies' hands. Now Joab is quite a character, and he is no fool of a general. And when he reads of David's plots, he knows it will be too blatant of an error to leave only Uriah to die in fierce fighting. And so... Joab intentionally sacrifices other soldiers, sending them to die alongside Uriah. They, they were all outnumbered in battle. All of that death to cover up the misdeed of their king, who still remains in his palace, still sheltered from the battle and from the consequences of his actions. David does not come off well in this story. He is an absent king. He leaves his military to fight his battles. He is greedy. He covets and takes what is not his. He is knowingly breaking the commandments which are written on the stone tablets he himself brought into the city, held within the Ark of the Covenant. And he is deceitful, 
attempting to cover up his misdeed. He orders the murder of an innocent man to keep his secret. He is complicit in the death of more innocent men who die in battle so that the death of Uriah may seem accidental. And through it all, he shows no remorse, no pity, no contrition. This is a pivotal point in David's story. From this episode forward, the rest of his days are filled with tragedy and loss. The evil that he does creates a legacy of destruction that outlives him. Violence and betrayal plague his reign and his children. He perpetuates the evil in this story because he can. Because he has acquired privilege and power. And it's that privilege and power that blind him to the ways in which he dehumanizes those around him. And Bathsheba, like so many women, without power is caught up in events outside of her control. And hers, unfortunately, is a common story. This month, an inspector general's report of the FBI investigation of Dr. Larry Nasser was released. Nasser, you might remember, was convicted of the sexual assault of minors while working with the USA Gymnastics national team and with Michigan State University. And he was alleged to have sexually assaulted at least 265 young women and girls, including Olympic and US women's national gymnastic team gymnasts. And in addition to the horror and trauma of his actions, the system which should have protected the vulnerable instead erred on the side of the perpetrator. And so the report that was issued revealed that this case was mishandled, that officials made false statements, that the trauma inflicted on his victims was minimalized, and that an official sought for his own personal advancement while hindering the investigation. And during that extended delay that occurred, 70 or more young athletes were allegedly sexually abused under the guise of medical treatment. We know David's story is only one in a long list of men abusing their status and their power. In 2017, the Me Too movement spread across the globe as women gained courage from the stories of others to share their own stories of abuse and violence. And what started out as just a few women speaking, about, speaking out about horrific predatory sexual abuse by a Hollywood mogul soon spread. And before our eyes, powerful men, some of them beloved and some of them reviled, were having their conspiracy of silence broken about their inexcusable behavior. Somehow, the previously unimaginable happened, that women were being listened to when they told their stories. Tragically, the church has been complicit in covering up episodes of abuse and sexual misconduct, and such shameful actions occur in all denominations, 
We cannot point fingers at others. No one tradition is immune. I've been a part of six churches in my life. And while I was a member, three of them <clears throat> had ministers leave because of sexual misconduct. None of them faced consequences because of their actions. Each one of those men moving on to a new congregation. And the church has never warned other congregations about the minister's actions. And in one case, one infuriating case, the minister moved on to two additional churches, each one a more prestigious pulpit than the one before. And in each case, repeated similar abuse of power and inappropriate conduct. The wounds of such betrayal of trust run deep. Whether the perpetrator is a known personally, whether they're a beloved minister of ours, or whether they're a public figure we have never met. Many who have experienced abuse at the hand of religious leaders have been silenced, have been maligned, and cast aside. And it is a shameful legacy of the church, and we have much to do to make amends. Now, if I were to preach a sermon that would do justice to this haunting story, I would begin not with David, but with Bathsheba. Hers is the story that needs to be told. But so much is left unsaid by our narrator that she remains silenced and sidelined even now. It's impossible for us to find a full picture of her because the focus of the story remains on the powerful and the privileged. It stays on David. The focus always seems to be on the powerful. Bathsheba's story may be lost to us. But what we can do is allow for Bathsheba's experience to open up avenues of conversation, to provide space for other victims of abuse to tell their stories and to be heard. That's a beginning step, just a beginning step that we can take to compassionately come alongside those who have been wounded and to, in a small way, allow for healing to begin. We can take this story, this horrific story in 2 Samuel, as an inspiration to protect the vulnerable, to make our sanctuaries and our classrooms safe places. One outspoken critic of the response of churches to abuse is Rachel Denhollander, who in a 2018 interview with Christianity Today said she believes, quote, Church is one of the least safe places to acknowledge abuse. And church is one of the worst places to go for help. Why? Because churches tend to value loyalty. Loyalty to beloved ministers and to church leaders over supporting the vulnerable. We, as the church, need to confess our failures. We need to pledge ourselves to prevention efforts and to accountability when things go wrong. You know, we had high hopes for David. 
when he was just a young shepherd lad, when he was singing songs to his sheep, when he was fending off predators, when he was being anointed as a lad in a bewildering secret ceremony he did not ask for. We had such high hopes for him. Yet here we see the beginnings of his fall. When power is unchecked, when no one stands up for the vulnerable, this is what happens. The story we know all too well. Tragedy and pain will follow. May we, the church, commit ourselves to no longer standing in the way. Refuse to avert our eyes to injustice and harm. May we be a place and may we be a people who welcome all God's children. Who not only worship in a sanctuary, but live out the call to be a safe community. A safe place for all. Let it be so. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.